Last week when uh, Braden got home, I told him we needed to go outside and finish cleaning up the leaves. We have a lot of trees in our yard. I could tell he was not especially excited because based on how long it had taken us the last time, it was going to take a really long time and it was going to be a lot of work and possibly take us a couple of days to do it. But when we got out to the shed and he saw that we had a riding mower, which I had picked up uh, just earlier that day, he grinned pretty widely because he knew the task was going to happen quickly, effectively, and possibly even somewhat enjoyably. Now, this is a far cry from the scope of the work that God does in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, but it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of some of the themes that we see from this passage. In the passage today, we're going to see those same themes of discouragement turned to joy. And from Ezra 5 and 6, I think we see this idea. Find joy in God's encouragement to finish his work. Find joy in God's encouragement to finish his work. So if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Ezra chapter 5. The first principle that I think we see uh, from the first five verses is that we do God's work supported by God's servants. We do God's work supported by God's servants. The prophets led the people, uh, called the people to build, and then the leaders led them in obeying. So Haggai and Zechariah, which we had uh, uh, been studying in the Sunday school hour, uh, they called the people to finish the work. The temple has been sitting idle, for nearly 20 years because of the discouragement and the opposition of the people of the land and getting it rebuilt. You remember that it was destroyed when uh, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon invaded Jerusalem. He destroyed it. Then the people were in exile for 70 years. Then Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Persians took over from the Babylonians. They uh, sent the people back to the land. They started building the temple, but there's a period of opposition and the temple has sat idle due to the successful opposition of the peoples of the land and even some of the people that were left in the land who had intermarried with the pagan uh, peoples, and they were opposing the building of the temple. God raises up Haggai and Zechariah to admonish the people, to remind them that they should not be rejoicing that they're back in the land while God's temple lay desolate. They should not be uh, letting this just sit there and not actually finish the work. The foundation was laid, as we saw in chapter 4. Uh, we saw our chapter 3 when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and they praised the Lord they sang and praised the Lord he's good and his loving kindness is upon Israel forever and there's great rejoicing and great weeping that this moment had finally come and then the enemies stopped the work and we see at the end of chapter 4 the work ceased and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia Joshua and Zerubbabel, the leaders of the people, the priest and the leader, the governor among the Israelites, started rebuilding the temple with the support of the prophets. Then the local government opposes the work. We see this in verse 3. The governor of the province beyond the river. What's the province beyond the river? The river um, would be, I believe, the River Jordan. They come to them and they say, all right, so what are we supposed to do? Why are you doing these things? Who issued you a decree? Um, this is of a much bigger scope than something you all might have encountered, which is you go to do work on your house. Do you have a proper permits? Is this allowed? All of those sorts of things. They're not just trying to rebuild uh, one person's house or do minor electrical work or something like that. They're trying to completely rebuild the temple of a city that had been destroyed for its former rebellion against the nation of Babylon. And so this is going to be concerning. The accusation that we saw in chapter 4 was... They're rebuilding these things, and if this happens, they are not going to 
pay any more tribute, and it's going to dishonor the kings, and all of these sorts of things. And the reply was, make the work stop, because this is a, a significant threat to our rule in that province, in that region. So Tatanai questions their authority. They reply, here are the men who, uh, under leadership of Joshua and Zerubbabel, are actually carrying out the work. But then we see an interesting phrase, a fascinating one in verse 5, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. Nothing was successful this time around at stopping the work that they were doing. In contrast to chapter 4, verse 24, work on the house stopped and it was stopped until the reign of Darius. This time it says the eye of their God was on them and they did not stop them. So what do we see from these first five verses? I think we are reminded of the fact that we ought to do the work that God has called us to do. We're not rebuilding a temple, but there are many things that God has called us as present-day Christians to do in obedience and service to him. And there are many excuses or hesitations or fears that lead us not to do them. And we went through some of those things last week. There are commands that God has given us that we ought to follow. And we say something like, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a pretty difficult thing to do. Here's all the reasons why I'm not equipped to do it, why I don't have the energy to do it, why I don't have the time to do it. God says it needs to be done. Are you going to make it happen? Paul says we ought to admonish one another, to follow after God, encourage one another all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. And it's easy for us to say, I'm too busy, I don't have time, how am I going to fit this in, what will people say, all of those sorts of things. And we don't do the things that God has called us to do. We ought to do the work that God has called us to do. There's another important point here, which is the leaders are not to do the work, but to serve and support God's people in the task to which he has called them. The prophets come, and it says in verse 2, the prophets were supporting them. The prophets weren't the ones who rebuilt the temple, but the prophets were supporting and reminding them of God's work and assisting and equipping them. And this parallels the pattern that God has laid out in the New Testament. Why did God give leaders and churches to equip God's people to do the work of ministry, not to do all the ministry? I should not be the only one, and I'm not the only one, who's going and telling people about Jesus who's helping in various capacities in the church. And I'm encouraged by the fact that so many of us are willing to uh, serve in various ways, to do the work of ministry that God has called us to, to give for the support of the church, all of those sorts of things. This is not something where I'm supposed to do it all. And it's tempting sometimes to say, well, this thing needs done. I'm going to do it. But I am not doing my job well if I go and do it. Instead of I say, all right, are you willing to go and minister to this person who's in need? Are we able to accomplish this in this way? On the one hand, because I can't do it all by myself. On the other hand, because that's not God's pattern. That's not what God wants to have happen. So we need to do the work that God has called us to do. The task of the prophets in their day, the task of the priest and so forth, was to encourage and support and lead them into the work as the God's people did it. And that pattern holds true today. But as opposition increases to doing God's work, we often wonder if faithful leaders serving and supporting and if faithful people carrying out the task is enough to keep things going to get the job done. And in the next larger section, from verse uh, 6 down through 17 of chapter 5, and then chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, we see this encouraging truth, that God can turn the hearts of mighty rulers in amazing ways. God can turn the hearts of mighty rulers in amazing ways. Tadanai and Shatharbozanai write the letter. 
And they appeal to the emperor to stop the temple from being built. They say, All peace to Darius the king. Let it be known we've gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones and beams laid in the walls, and it's going on with great care, and is succeeding in their hands. Then we asked those elders and said to them thus, Who issued you a a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names so as to inform you that we might write down the names of the men who are at their head. Thus they answered us, saying, We're the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. So they write to Darius to explain their concerns and the reply of the Israelites. What's the rest of their reply? The people of Israel laid out their history. Because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. Also the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon. These King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one whose name was Sheshbazar, and whom he had appointed governor. He said to him, Take these utensils, go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt in its place. Then that Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God in Jerusalem, and from then until now it has been under construction, and it is not yet completed. So that was the reply of the people of Israel. They recount the words to the king, and then they make their appeal. If it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, if it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send to us his decision concerning this matter. And so their their opposition does not seem to be um, a scheme or a threat or an attempt to thwart the work. They just want to make sure everything is in order. So they say, all right, let's check the records. Here's what they're saying. Is it true? We appeal to the king, to the emperor Darius, to review these things and see if it is in fact the case. So the local governors appeal, and then Darius honors the governor's request, yet rules emphatically in favor of the Israelites. Listen to verses 1 through 12, or starting verses 1 through 5. Then King Darius issued a decree, and search was made in the archives, where the treasures were stored in Babylon. In Ekbaton, in the fortress, which is the province of Media, a scroll was found, and there was written in it as follows. Memorandum, in the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, at the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt, and let its foundations be retained, its height being sixty cubits, and its width sixty cubits with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers, and let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Also let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their places in the temple in Jerusalem, and you shall put them in the house of God. So he does this search to confirm Cyrus's decree. This in and of itself is a remarkable thing, to the extent that there has been turnover in leadership in the time period between when Cyrus issues the decree And the moment in which they're now searching for the records, there's different governors in the region of Jerusalem. There's a different leader in Babylon. The fact that they found these records is significant. Why do I say that's significant? We tend to think today that we're really good at preserving records. And I went to find out something about the history of church. I went to the city of Royal Oak, and they said, oh, by the way, we had either a flood or a fire however many years ago. And so everything before a certain date, if it was in the file cabinets, it's gone. But we have these other records that were from a previous period of time 
They were preserved on microfiche or something like that, and those have all now been digitized. My point is to say the fact that they found this scroll was remarkable, and God was directing their hands to find it, to confirm that the words of his people were true, and to confirm that God's words were true, and the work that he has done before as a testimony to Darius of what had previously taken place. Darius reaffirms Cyrus's disposition toward the Israelites, and in fact, even goes a step beyond, I feel like, in verses 1 through 12, particularly verses 6 through 12. He starts out in chapter 6, verse 6. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethbar Bozanai, and your colleagues, the officials of the provinces beyond the river, keep away from there. Leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. So it's kind of like if somebody has, uh, they want a, like a stop order on all of the work that's taking place, and they say, all right, this needs to stop, and the city official says, no, in fact, you leave them alone and let it happen, and it needs to go forward. So that's the first um, sort of thing turning in the favor of the Israelites as God directs the heart of the king. But he doesn't stop there. Look at verses 8 through 10. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river and that without delay. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs for a burnt offering to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil as the priest in Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them daily without fail that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the king of heaven, to the God of heaven, and pray for the life of the king and his sons. All right? Let them do the work, and you pay for it, and give them also things to sacrifice so they can pray to their God on my behalf. This is a remarkable work in the heart of this ruler that God would accomplish and, and, and turn his heart such that not only would he uphold the words of his predecessor, and say, yes, let the work continue. But he's also saying, and we're going to pay for it out of the taxes collected from the region. And so then um, he takes it even a step further. And if anyone opposes the work, what's supposed to happen to them? Verse 11, and I issue a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy the house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. Keep away and leave them alone. Pay for their building and their sacrifices on our behalf. Disobedience will bring the death penalty for the person who opposes and destruction to his house, in addition to the judgment of God. This is a remarkable turn of events that God's people have gone from cowering in fear at the threat of the people in the land to the fact that the, govern the government that is over them, the local government says, we're not sure this should keep happening. And from the highest authority in the land, he says, it will keep happening. We're going to pay for it. And anyone who op opposes it is going to die and his house be destroyed. God works in an amazing way. Sometimes in moments when we see no way forward, God moves in shockingly favorable ways on behalf of his people. Now, we're not the people of Israel. 
We're not rebuilding the temple. There are not specific prophecies about the exact moments in the life of our church. So I'm not going to pretend and say that God is going to turn the hearts of, for example, the president or the governor or the city council in our favor with anything doing with buildings or anything like that. I know we've had a lot of discussion about those things in the life of our church earlier on. I am not saying God is going to work it out in the exact same way that he did for the people of Israel. But here's the thing. It is easy for us to forget that the same God who did those things for the people of Israel is the same God who's at work in us today. And that's a really important truth for us to keep in mind because when we face opposition, whether it be about everyday mundane things like building permits or whatever else, things with the parking lot, it's easy for us to forget that God took care of a much bigger building and much greater opposition than we feel like we might have experienced as a local congregation for our everyday needs of our church. And in far more important issues that have to do with our individual walks with God and our opportunities to point people around us who don't yet know God to walk with God, that same God has power to work and accomplish his purpose. That should give us confidence and encouragement and hope. So rather than despairing or questioning God's love for us, we should remember, thirdly, God supports his work among his people to encourage them and to bring joy. We see this in chapter 6, verses 13 through 22. The Israelites built the temple according to the words of the prophets and the decrees of the Persian kings. We see this in verses 13 through 15. I want to point something out to you. Verse chapter uh, 4, verse 24 says, The work stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Verse 15 says, The temple was completed in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So let's just pause and think about that for a moment. The temple has been sitting idle. The foundation has been laid. Not much more has been done on it since uh, for about 20 years. And then in four years, they finished the entire building project. That is evidence of God's hand with them in accomplishing the work. It says in verse 13, Tatanai carried out the decree with all diligence. The elders of the Jews were successful in building. Note what it says they were successful in doing. On what basis they were successful in doing it? On the basis of the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. God spoke his word through his prophets and God kept his words through the prophets. The kings decreed what would take place according to what God had prophesied earlier through Isaiah. My servant Cyrus is going to send the people back to the land and they're going to be restored. And God kept that word even after a delay of 20 years and through additional kings, God continues unfolding his work it's seen as God's plan accomplished through the servants, the prophets, and God's servants, willing or no, these pagan kings. What happens next? The Israelites restore temple worship according to the law. We see this in verses 16 through 18. They celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Now, verse 17 might have seemed underwhelming to any who remembered the records of what happened in Solomon's day at the dedication of the first temple. What happened to the first temple in Solomon's day? I looked this up. 
they offered so many sacrifices that they lost count of them or they were beyond number, it said, the text says. And here, there's very specific numbers that they offer. And yet, despite the fact that it was not perhaps as profound or glorious as what happened in the days of Solomon, it is still being restored after these 70 years and more and after, quite honestly, even decades or centuries before that of unfaithful worship to God with long periods of the temple being in disrepair or the people going their own way, there is this moment of hope and glory in which God is restoring temple worship in the place that he had designated for his people. They offer, according to the tribes of Israel, it says, the 12 male goats as a sin offering. They appoint the priests to their divisions. Things are back in order the way that they were supposed to be, according to the book of Moses, verse 18. And then they celebrate the Passover with joy. Although there were other feasts that were important, in the life of God's people, it could be argued that the Passover was the most significant one for them. And the fact that they're celebrating the Passover at the right time, in the right way, was evidence of God's eye and God's hand being upon them and with them. And so it's according to the law, verse 19, on the 14th of the first month. It's a purified as God required, verse 20. It is joined with those from Babylon and those from the land who purified themselves. It's easy to think that the people from the land who were there, that none of them remained faithful to God. Some of them did. And those, plus the ones that came back from Babylon, now have an opportunity to worship their God together. And most importantly, I think from the passage, verse 22, it says, They observed the feast with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and it turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. With joy, God made them rejoice. He encouraged them by turning the heart of the king to their favor. So here's a question that I would ask you related to this passage. Do you find joy in God's work? Because it's easy for us to do God's work because we feel like we have to do it as his people, because we feel like we ought to do it as his people, but with very little joy. Along those same lines, do you see that God specifically accomplishes certain things in your life to encourage you as you keep following him? And sometimes these things are easy to, mo to miss as we go through our everyday life, because we get busy, we get overwhelmed, we start to wonder if God is good. We start to wonder if God is faithful, if he's going to keep his word. A passage like this should encourage us that, yes, God keeps his word. God is faithful. God is good. And God specifically does things in our lives to encourage us in the task that he's called us to. How does this unfold in our lives? It begins by listening to God's word and obeying. I would argue that, well, before we get to that, let me take a step back. Assuming that you have a relationship with God. It starts with listening to his word and obeying. If you don't yet have a relationship with God, where it starts is hearing that first command, believe on Jesus and be saved, like the Philippian jailer did, like we talked about earlier this morning. If you hear that and God does a work in your life and makes you one of his people, that lays the foundation for you being able to follow him and find joy in his work and all those sorts of things. Sometimes we try to do it backwards. We try to say, I should have joy in life. Things should go well. I can accomplish God's work. But I don't start by coming through Jesus. I start by my own efforts. I will obey because God wants me to obey. 
And then the more I go through life, the more I discover I cannot obey because I don't have God's power in me. So the starting point is beginning to come as a follower of God to him through Jesus. Turn away from yourself, your sin, anything you're worshiping other than God. Turn to God and begin to serve him. But you, the believing has to come before the serving or the serving has no power to actually accomplish what God wants it to do. That's the, the, the very foundation. But assuming you have that relationship with God, we listen to God's word and obey. I think much of the time we know the right thing to do, but the two primary obstacles are we refuse to do it either out of stubbornness or out of despair. We say, yes, God, I know that you've said this is what's supposed to happen in my life, but I would rather do this. I like to pick on Jonah, but we're a lot like him sometimes. God says, go do this thing, and we're like, yes, but I'm going to go do this instead. Did Jonah know the right things? He gives the people, on the, the sailors on the boat, a theology lesson as the storm is about to sink it and they're all going to drown. He knows the right things, but he's not obeying God because he's being stubborn and going his own way. And God said, go preach my truth to these people because I want to get a lot of them to hear the truth and turn to me in repentance. And Jonah says, but I know better than that because those people don't deserve your mercy, God. We can be stubborn the same ways. Maybe not in a way that's remembered by people down through the centuries, but we can be very stubborn and we know the right thing. Most of the time the problem is not, I don't know what God wants me to do. So, God says, I want you to walk with me. I want to know me. I want you to know me. And somehow in our minds we turn that into, go to church, don't do anything really bad, and everything is great. God says, no, I don't want you to just be present in a church service, reading some verses of the Bible during the week, praying a few prayers when you need stuff like when you lose your keys or when you're stuck in traffic or all of those sorts of things. I want you to walk with me and love me and know me. And sometimes we say, but it's easier if I just do these things. Or it's easier if I go to the other side and I don't do any of the things that he said and I go my own way and I sin. That's also easier. But walking with God in the way he calls us to do, sometimes we're stubborn and we don't want to do it. Sometimes we fail to do it out of despair, not because we don't want to do it, but because we don't see how it's going to happen. God, I've tried doing the things that you want me to do. And my life doesn't seem to be getting better, so what's the point? And that was quite probably the attitude of some of these people in this day, because to the extent the temple sat idle for 20 years, they knew God wanted it done, and they knew from their history that he had the power to do it, and they knew even from Cyrus's decree that God had sent them back and it could happen, but they became discouraged and led to despair by the opposition of the people of the land, and they just said, we're not going to do it. So it's not always a stubbornness that's sort of a willful rebelliousness. Sometimes it's just a, I don't see how this is going to happen, God. 
Like the people of Israel, we can get stuck in long periods of time of delaying to do what we know God clearly wants us to do. However, when we purpose to obey, we see God work in remarkable ways. Like I said, maybe not changing the heart of the president or the governor or the city council or someone like that. But can he? Yes. Maybe not changing the heart of this neighbor or that neighbor or this person we encounter in our daily life, but can he? Absolutely. So I'm not a prophet. I don't know the future. I don't know exactly what God's going to unfold in your life this week. But what I can tell you is to the extent that God had the power to do it in the days of Ezra and the people of Israel then, God certainly has the power to do it now. And if you have forgotten that, I want to remind you of that. When God moves in amazing ways, whatever those look like, God does so to bring you joy. It's easy for us to think, and maybe you don't think this, maybe it's just shallowness of the way that I've looked at the world sometimes. It's easy to think, we're Christians, so life's going to be really hard until we die, and then everything will get better. Right? Because then we'll be in heaven, and we'll have God's blessing, and all those sorts of things. I would remind you of the example of Paul in Philippians. He's in jail. The Romans are treating him unjustly. And Paul says, I have joy. So joy is not something that waits till heaven. God's encouragement and God's help is not something that waits till later. That's something that we can and ought to be experiencing right now. So, don't grow weary in well-doing. What does it say? In due season we will reap if we do not faint. It is... It is probably a regular occurrence in your life that you get overwhelmed with the difficulties of this life. Whether it be illness, whether it be money, whether it be relationships, whether it be parenting, whether it be things with people at work, whatever it is, it is easy to get overwhelmed in the circumstances of life and to forget that our relationship with God is meant to bring us joy and joy abundantly, as Jesus said. So if God worked in amazing ways to accomplish his work in the life of his people in the days of Ezra, and if Jesus said the same kind of thing about the work that God wants to unfold in our lives today, then we can and ought to find joy in serving God even today. Probably one of um, I'm trying to think how to say this. There will be moments in your life that you have no idea what to do, and everything seems to be falling apart. And there is joy in the need for dependence on God in those moments in a way that is hard to describe. 
And there are moments in the everyday circumstances of life where you see the kindness of God in an unexpected way where you see that same kind of thing. So here's what I'm trying to say. And, and then there's the moments that are like the really profound things that you're like, you know, people sometimes describe this as like a mountaintop experience or whatever, like Moses seeing God's glory, those kinds of things. In whichever of those circumstances you find yourself, the depths of despair, the heights of exaltation, or the mundane everyday circumstances of life, there is joy to be found in walking with God. So what do we learn from this passage? Find joy in God's encouragement to finish his work. Last week we said that we looked at the idea that if we're going to... If we're going to honor God with our work, we have to start and finish well. But the finishing of the work is an opportunity for joy. All of you are in different circumstances where it's a struggle to find joy. You have chronic pain. You have friends that won't talk to you. You have um, family members who are unbelievers. You have questions about the future of your work. You have ups and downs in all manner of things. There is joy to be found in following Jesus in those circumstances. So don't lose heart and don't lose hope and recognize that it doesn't have to wait till heaven. Find joy in God's encouragement to finish his work. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the example of your people in the Old Testament, we see your faithfulness above all. Give us joy in walking with you because you are a good and faithful God. We pray this in Christ's name.